0: This is the But He Spit in My Coffee podcast, where you can listen to my award winning audiobook. I'm Carrie Williams, the author. Cindy Piller is our reader. If you haven't been with us since the beginning, I suggest going back to start with episode one. 49. On my way to family therapy, I recognize a wiry woman just outside the entrance to the main New Hope building. She's one of the regular staff in Devon's Cottage, but I haven't seen her recently. How are you? She cocks her head. They didn't tell you? She holds up her arm to show me a cast covering her thumb and wrist. Devin was upset. You know how he gets. I gasp in genuine shock. This poor woman. Surely she isn't paid enough for this. Not knowing how else to make this right, I offer weekly. I'm so sorry. I'll understand if you decide to press charges. No, ma'am. I'd lose my job. We're not allowed to file charges on the kids, but that ain't nothing. Taking my arm, she leads me out of sight of the windows that are leering at us like dark spying eyes. Did they tell you what he did to Desmond? She asks in a hushed voice. I shake my head. He got a root canal done. His face was all swollen, and he'd told the kids to be careful. I wins sensing where this story is going. She pops a fist through the air. Devin punched him right in the mouth. My hand flies to my own cheek. She leans in close. Don't let that boy back to live with you. He's dangerous, very dangerous. Moments later, I'm sitting in Beth's office. He broke her thumb, and punching Mr. Desmond is a major escalation, I insist. Devin's never attacked a man before. It is a bit concerning, Beth says, looking markedly unconcerned. Fear stumbles over the mangled edges of my mind. Is Devin no longer intimidated by men? When he moves home, will he behave for Delano? That's why Devin is here. Beth holds a hands up in a what-do-you-expect gesture. He needs treatment. That's true. He does need treatment but I'm not at all convinced that the treatment here is doing him any good. Beth never wants to talk about that, though. Instead, she constantly redirects me to look beyond Devin's behaviors. She wants me to praise his good behavior and ignore the bad. Even if I accept this as part of his therapy, how will he transition back home to consequences, homework, and chores? How will he transition back to the real world? I ask some variation of this question in every session. Each time, Beth dismisses me like I'm some sort of Munchausen mommy. Let's not worry about that right now. He won't be going home until he's ready. Devin senses the disconnect, too. And today's session is no different. As usual, he's had incidents every day for the last week. Yet he still thinks that Beth will be sending him home. Of course he does because he's had no consequences for any of these behaviors. It's all in my notes. Upset in class because told to stop talking. Threats to suffocate himself with a plastic bag. Asked to go to the quiet room. Screaming, choking supervisor. Tried to slam her hand in the door. Said he was going to piss everywhere and did. Tried to strangle himself with his shirt. Restraint. Beth asks Devin. What coping skills did you find helpful this week? Um, take deep breaths, take a walk with staff, a self-five. Absurd. Their answer, to get Devon to stop choking a supervisor and trying to strangle himself, is to tell him to take deep breaths. Unable to tolerate the farce any longer, I say. Or you can choose to stop. There's an uncomfortable silence. I continue. I realize everyone thinks you can't control yourself, but you and I both know you can. And that is the crux of the problem. Devin has to choose to do the right things. And he won't. My pink notebook has pages and pages of examples. 9.25 p.m. Mr. Desmond. Earlier today, Devin was upset and exposed himself to two girls. 9.30 a.m. Last night, Devin had a tantrum for three hours because he didn't want to go to bed. This morning, he won't let anyone in the cottage eat breakfast. What I'm the most concerned about is that Devin isn't reacting to some major injustice. Everyday life is triggering him, not getting his way, being told no, having to go to bed at bedtime. At New Hope... He's developed a habit of responding violently to small, insignificant triggers. Treatment is making things worse. 50. There are hair products scattered across the double sinks in my bathroom and discarded clothes on the floor. The scent of the flat iron singes the air. I hurry past Kayla and into my walk-in closet. You're not going to be able to use my bathroom if you keep making such a huge mess. I slip on yoga pants and pull my nightgown off. I fumble with my bra, pull on a black t-shirt, and run my fingers through my hair. Unplugging the flat iron, I tell her, Don't use this while I'm gone. Hurrying down the stairs, I call to Amayas. I want your room cleaned before I get home. He's sitting at the table, playing on his school iPad and ignoring me. I snatch the iPad from his hands. I'm checking your room before you get this back, I warn. As I reverse my car down the driveway, Amaya stands in the doorway watching me. His mouth is moving. I can't hear what he's saying, but I don't need to. Driving toward New Hope, I begin to mentally replay Devin's latest incident. By the time I walk into family therapy, I'm confident that this time it will be the eye-opener Beth needs. Devin is telling staff, explicitly, that he's misbehaving to force them to take him to the hospital. Can he be any more obvious? I read to her from my notes. Suzanne. Devin has been screaming for hours, says he's going to strangle himself, wants to go to the hospital, and says he knows what to do to get us to take him there. He's being so horrible the nurse wants permission to give him a shot of Seroquel. I look at Beth expectantly. Beth sighs and leans forward. Devin is discouraged. He's done so much hard work, but he's still here. He's lost all hope. My face sours. What hard work has he done? How can she not see how calculating his actions are? He chooses not to participate in schoolwork, but he chooses to participate in wreck time and swimming. I take a deep breath, letting Beth's naivete roll off me like big fat raindrops off an umbrella. I tell her, this isn't about being discouraged. He's not getting better because there are no consequences or rules here. He has no incentive to behave. Beth clears her throat, and I look up from my clenched hands. At this point, we're going to need to step him down and see how he does. Step him down? Anxiety seizes me with its sinewy fingers and wrings the breath out of my lungs. I finger my notebook like a talisman. I flip through and read Beth, an incident from last week. Violent, Removed from peers, threatening to kill staff and others, suffocate self with sock, says he's going to get a gun and shoot his mom in the face, threatens to tell supervisor Ms. Samantha touched him. He's not safe to be at home, I say in conclusion, with appropriate supports. He's threatening to get a gun and shoot me in the face. You said he wouldn't be discharged until he's ready. He's clearly not ready. Beth clucks her tongue. He's showing improvement. He's using his coping skills more often. He's definitely worse than when he first came here, I insist. Maybe he's improved since last week or last month, but he's way worse than when he got here. Shrill panic mounts in my voice. Let's look at this in a more positive way. Devin wants to be at home. This is an opportunity for you to focus on your relationship. He's trying so hard to show you how much he loves you. But he spit in my coffee, I splutter. That is not him trying so hard. We talked about this. Beth shakes her head as though disappointed that I'm still bringing this up. Now, if you're not comfortable with him coming home, we can look at putting him in one of our foster homes and in our day treatment program. I hold up my palms in protest. We adopted him out of foster care. He needs to get better and come home. That's why he's here. And doesn't he need stability? Why would you want to move him? Beth leans back in her chair and admits, Medicaid isn't going to approve a longer stay. He's been here for almost a year, and our average stay is six to nine months. My whole world tips beneath me. Now I understand. This is about money. I drive home utterly discouraged and beaten down. I stumble through the front door like a zombie, and Amias rushes over. Come look at my room. I cleaned it. I pull his iPad out of my purse and hand it to him, no longer caring either way. I trudge upstairs and flop onto my bed. How has it come to this? I hear a sniffle and pry my eyes open. Kayla stands next to the bed. Tears leak in long drips down her face. Alarmed, I ask, What's wrong? I can count on one hand how many times I've seen her cry. Her whole face seems to droop. She wipes at her cheeks and mumbles. You said I can't use your bathroom. Realization slams through me, and I sit and pull her into a hug. I'm sorry. Mommy was frustrated and rushed. I don't want to be kicked out of your bathroom. Her voice quivers, revealing emotions leagues deeper than our interaction this afternoon. I thought we were supposed to share everything. We do. I'm sorry. I smooth her hair back from her face and, pressing my lips to the side of her head, I whisper Girls stick together. 51. To avoid small talk, I scroll through news headlines on my cell phone. Emma, the New Hope foster care coordinator, sits at one end of the long conference table. She's petite with a blonde bob and glossed lips. Her cute sweater set and capris make me feel middle aged and frumpy. Beth strides in. Devon's new clinical assessment, she says, handing me a manila folder. After an awkward wait, Devon's New Hope foster parents arrive and Emma makes quick introductions. Srijana is about my age, with a soft glow, warm honey-colored eyes, and black hair. She and her husband, Niman look as though they fit as perfectly together as salt and pepper shakers. He's got grayish-white hair and is short and stout like Srijana. All I know about them is that this is their first foster care placement, and they have children of their own. Once we are all seated around the table, the meeting begins. Shoving my hands beneath my thighs to stop them from trembling, I say, I was a foster parent myself for years, so I know how this works. You probably haven't been told the truth. I won't let Devin come home because he's not safe. He's not safe to be in your home either. Gratified by the flicker of surprise in Srijana and Nimman's faces, I rush off script. Have you been told how violent he is? He throws rages for hours and destroys property. He punched a man in the face and broke a woman's hand. A blend of confusion and pity clouds Srijana's eyes. I know you have kids, too. You need to be thinking about their safety. I say every word with absolute certainty. Niman turns to Emma with his eyebrows raised. Emma responds in a cool, professional tone, highlighting that I'm a raving lunatic. Devin needs to practice his coping skills in a family like yours so he can return home. As therapeutic foster parents, you've been trained to work with these types of children. We're here to support you all along the way. She smiles warmly at them. Rajana leans forward and rests her elbows on the table. Her eyes radiate sincerity towards me. We've heard what you said. We're going to take good care of your son. This time apart is for you to learn how to be a better mother for him. Fury pulses at my temples. What have they told her about me? My child is not in foster care because I have lost custody of him. He isn't here because I need parenting help. He's here because he needs treatment. I open my mouth to respond, but by the time I do, Emma has already taken advantage of my stunned silence to move on. As soon as the meeting adjourns, I rush to my car, looking straight ahead. I will not let them see me cry. Once hidden behind the tinted windows, I pull out Devin's new clinical assessment. Resting the packet against the steering wheel, I flip through the pages. Beth reports that Devon's peer interactions have improved and that he's making progress on his therapeutic goals. Not true. She says he's reduced his number of incidents and has not needed to be restrained in the last month. Not true. To my shock, she's also written that I'm supportive of his stepping down to foster care. Not true. Then Devin's prognosis pops from the page like a punch in the face. Fair. My tears slosh onto the paper as I read why. Devin's mother is an active participant in therapy and is open to new concepts, but demonstrates an authoritarian style of parenting and a strong belief Devin is consciously choosing to engage in behaviors that disrupt the family. Where is Devin's responsibility? Where is his agency? Where is the acknowledgement that he's a damaged child? According to Beth, this is all my fault. Devin's prognosis is only fair. Not because his brain is underdeveloped, not because he experienced early childhood trauma, and not because he refuses to comply with treatment. Devin has only a fair likelihood of getting better because of me. Fifty-two. Newly paroled, Sarah joins Facebook and her privacy settings are wide open. I discover this during my weeks upon weeks of insomnia boredom. I scroll through her pictures and status updates. She has a penchant for duck face selfies and over-the-shoulder poses to show off her Kardashian-esque bottom. She calls her boyfriend, a handsome black man with an ankle monitor, her king. She is his queen. According to her About page on Facebook, they're in an open relationship. Many of Sarah's pictures showcase the word coogie tattooed across her chest. I find the term in the online urban dictionary. A cool-ass motherfucker. A cool gangster. Sarah and I couldn't be more different, but I've had a soft spot for her since I read about her in the blue books, I set up an anonymous Facebook account and upload several recent pictures of Devin and Kayla. I send Sarah a friend request. Moments later, she accepts. I send her a message explaining who I am, and she's ecstatic. She tells me that she has a job assembling furniture and lives with her boyfriend at his mother's house. She's especially proud to have earned her GED and cosmetology license while in prison. Over the next weeks, I upload more pictures, a photographic timeline of the years Sarah missed. In my favorite picture of Devin, he's wearing a yellow bicycle helmet and peering at the camera shyly. In another, from one of his birthday parties, he holds Chuck E. Cheese tickets up for the camera with a huge smile on his face. In my favorite picture of Kayla, she's perching high up on a tree branch, as nonchalant as a cat. Sarah shares the pics with her Facebook friends. They comment that the kids look like her. I notice the resemblance, too. Sarah uploads a picture of her tattoo of Devin's and Kayla's initials, and I can't resist showing Kayla. Look, she loves you so much she tattooed your initials on her ankle. Kayla stares at it in awe. I show her more pictures and we giggle together at one of Sarah wearing a gold grill and fanning out $20 bills while squatting to show off her bottom in tight white pants. I wonder what her voice sounds like, Kayla says. Do you want to message her? Kayla nods and slides in closer to me. After they type messages back and forth a bit, Sarah asks, May I please speak to Devin too? Trying to find the right answer... My fingers hover over the keyboard. I can't tell her, of all people, the truth. The truth that I can't take care of him either. The truth is that Devin is doing great living with his new foster family. I settle on telling Sarah that Devin's therapist doesn't think it's a good idea for them to have contact yet. I'm strict. To emphasize her point. Srijana chops one hand against her palm during our CFT meeting. It's like the military at my house, and that's what he's responding to. Devin sits next to her, head down, looking at his hands, which are folded in his lap. To Devin's other side is a day treatment worker. At one end of the conference table is Emma, who facilitates these meetings, and at the other, Wanda, who has replaced Beth as Devin's therapist. I'm sitting alone on one side of the table, like the subject of an interrogation. I stare out the window, watching some scrappy birds pecking around in the few stalks of grass that have been able to make their way up through the hard ground. I don't bother responding to what's being said. What's the point? I'm also strict and structured. Why, in my case, is that a problem? But they applaud Srajana. Devin is only at her house awake for about three hours per weekday. She doesn't have him during the day, doesn't even drive him to school. She doesn't have him on the weekends. I do. Once Srijana is done bragging about her success with my son, Emma turns to the day treatment worker for an update. It's always someone different. Seemingly anyone who happens to be available. And these workers aren't mental health professionals. This is an entry-level position that requires only a GED. They're little more than babysitters. Today's worker says, I personally got no problems with him. How often is he being restrained? Emma asks, Pen poised for the answer. The worker looks at the ceiling thoughtfully. I'd say at least a couple a week. A few days ago, he was upset, waiting for his turn on the computer's. He looks at me and adds apologetically. We only have three computers, so they have to take turns. Returning his focus back to the entire group, he says. He punched a female peer in the back of her head because he wanted her computer. I got the note home about that, Srijana interrupts. I had him write 1,000 sentences as his punishment. It took him three days, but he wrote them. Isn't that right, Devin? she asks as she reaches into her bag. Devin nods without looking up. Srajana slaps a spiral notebook onto the table. I brought them to show you. It's folded open to a page crammed with penciled lines of numbered sentences. The sentences on that page start with 351. I say, When he was living at home, I would give him 100 sentences as a consequence. His brother and sister, who are a year younger than him, would do them. But he would refuse to do even ten. Devon shifts uncomfortably in his chair, and I'm glad. He should feel embarrassed by his behavior. I continue. He wouldn't even do one. If he did one thousand sentences for her, that shows he just doesn't want to do what I say. Srijana nods in agreement. He can do it. Wanda who has yet to schedule a family therapy session with me, clears her throat. She's elegant with red acrylic nails and a confident poise that I envy. Srijana, you do not need to worry about consequences for Devin's behavior at day treatment, she says. We need you to focus on encouraging his good behavior in your home. Devin presses his lips tightly together, but can't stop the smile turning up the corners of his eyes. Yes, I'm probably the only one who notices, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Wanda turns toward me. Writing sentences does not work for Devin. That is not an appropriate consequence for him. Devin looks up, wide-eyed at hearing her admonish me, his mother, in this authoritative tone. I throw my hands into the air. Well, did day treatment consequence him? What consequence should he get for punching a girl in the back of the head? You keep referring to Devin's behaviors as if he's choosing them. You need to understand this is not a choice for him. Of course he's choosing these behaviors. I vibrate with outrage. A sneeze is involuntary. Punching a girl in the back of the head is not. Wanda holds up her hands to calm me, but I truck on. Devin's behavior is completely unacceptable. He's able to control himself if he wants to. He's not punching her kids in the head, I say with a nod towards Srijana. He chooses to do it at day treatment because he knows he can do whatever he wants here. Srijana nods her agreement. Miss Williams, Wanda says, and her haughty tone creeps under my skin. It is our responsibility to create an environment where Devon will be successful and consequences do not work for him. What does work for him, then? I snap. Well, for example, we have recently moved Devin to a group with older kids where he is the youngest. His physical aggression toward his peers is already beginning to diminish. He is doing great. Devin straightens up as though proud of this accomplishment. But I'm not having it. You mean because they're bigger than him, and he's scared of them? What happens when he comes home to his little brothers and sister? He needs to learn to be around younger children without bullying them. Wanda gives me a disdainful look, but no response. There's a clunky silence before Emma moves on to discharge planning. The system is set up in levels, and Medicaid likes to move kids up and down the steps in order. Devin moved from PRTF down to foster care and the plan is to now move him down to living at home with services. No date has been set, but they're talking about early summer. I look back out through the window at the birds as the team discusses the calendar and schedules next month's CFT meeting. Don't those birds know there is nothing for them here? Why do they keep pecking the ground anyway? Why don't they fly away? When the meeting ends, Devin is taken back to the day treatment program, and Srijana and I walk in awkward silence to the parking lot. As I turn towards my vehicle, Srijana places a hand on my arm. You're too strong, she says. You need to cry and beg them for help. That's what they want. I nod uncertainly, surprised and confused by her words, and not knowing what to make of this. She goes on. I hear how they talk about you when you aren't there. They think there's nothing wrong with Devin. They think it's that you don't want him. When I first met you, I didn't know who to believe or what to believe. Now I understand exactly what's going on. I want you to know I'm with you. My heart kicks. I finally have an ally. I pull into the Red Robin restaurant parking lot at 7:30 A.M. on Saturday to pick up Devon for his weekend home visit, and see Srajana's Lexus idling in wait for me. It's our regular meeting place to exchange Devon for his home visits. He's with me from Saturday morning until Sunday evening. Srijana and I now chat during these exchanges, but neither of us has led on to new hope that we are friendly. Devon hops out of Srijana's SUV and walks toward me. His hair is bushy. I slide open the minivan door as he bounds over. Hey, Devin, hop in, I say, then walk towards Rajana's vehicle. She unrolls her window and rests her arm in the open sill. Her youngest son, a little older than Brandon, sits next to her on the leather seat, wearing headphones and playing on an iPad. I'll have his dad take him to the barber this weekend, I tell her. How have things been going? That boy won't shower, she wrinkles her nose. He smells so bad. I was picking up my sons from school yesterday, and I made him stand outside the car during carpool. He says he's scared of the shower. She tilts her head cynically. He's not scared of the shower. He's always showered fine at my house. Sprajana sips from her can of Diet Coke. She drinks Diet Coke constantly, like I drink coffee. When he was standing outside my car that day talking to me, his eyes were empty. No emotion, empty. It's like he's evil. I know the look that she's talking about. Cold and detached. I'm not sure I'd call it evil, though. He loves animals. Isn't harming animals a classic sign of any psychopath? No, he's not evil. He's just unbelievably oppositional. Srijana squints in the brightness of the rising sun. You're right to keep fighting them about letting him come home. I feel like giving up. They're so unreasonable. I hate to say this, but what about his birth, Mom? She asks. Have you thought of giving him back to her? The idea has been a lurking traitor in a back alley of my mind for a while, but I can't bring myself to say it out loud. I ask, Did you see that story about those parents who tried to give their son back? It's been in the news. Ohio, I think. Srijana shakes her head. They adopted the kid out of foster care. They dropped him off to child services and were arrested. I bet he's just like Devon. Wow. She shakes her head. Anyway, Devin is adopted. I can't send him back even if I wanted to. Back home, Delano trims Devon's hair and takes him upstairs to shower and brush his teeth. All the while, I hear Delano lecturing, teaching Devin how to shower, as though that's the problem. So gullible. The next day after church, the kids play in the backyard. Jason keeps an eye on them as he repairs our communal fence. I walk by Devon's bedroom and notice his red comforter askew. As I straighten it, I catch the acrid stench of urine. I pull down his bedding and pat gingerly, expecting my hand to sink into spongy pee. It's dry. Then I notice a wet patch on the carpet in one corner of the room. At first, Devon denies it. But he wilts beneath my glower. I, I, I didn't mean to. I couldn't make it to the bathroom. This bathroom? I say, sarcastically pointing to the door that's kitty corner to his in the hallway. He looks at me, blinks rapidly. You could stand up and make it to the corner to pee, but not to the bathroom? I begin to pack his clothes into his backpack. It's time to go back to Miss Rajana's house. I'll be talking to New Hope about this tomorrow. We'll have to go back to day visits if you're going to pee on the carpet when you spend the night. It's an empty thread. New Hope will never back me up. I know it. He knows it. We pull into the Red Robin, and I tell Devin to wait in the car. Srijana rolls down her window when I walk over. Devin peed on his carpet, I say. He's never done that at my house. He's going to tonight for sure, I predict. She rears her head back, but I continue. That's how he'll try to prove he can't control it, and how he'll try to prove he didn't do it at my house on purpose. Srajana vehemently shakes her head. Not at my house. His bathroom is right outside his bedroom door. I press my lips into a firm line. I guess she'll have to learn for herself. The next morning, I'm driving to drop the kids off at school when the caller ID for Srijana flashes across the screen of my cell. She doesn't bother saying hello. She blurts, That boy! I'm so mad! This is Ben, but he's spitting my coffee. If you like this podcast... Please leave a five-star review to help others find it.